We're going to look at Psalm 63 this morning. It's on page 479 in your pew Bible. Psalm 63. Now hear the word of the Lord. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, my right, uh, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let me pray for us. Father, as we've already confessed this morning, your word has always been true. It is true now this morning, and it will be true as long as we live and after that. And we pray uh, that from your word, you would teach us this morning, and that you would show us good things that would satisfy our souls, and that we could find rest in you, and that you would find glory in that. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, waterlessness is a much bigger problem than most of us realize. I did a little bit of research on this. If you visit the website, National uh, Integrated Drought Information System, that's drought.gov. I'm sure you will go there quickly after the service. It's not the most entertaining website, so I don't recommend it. But you will find that there are 11.8 million Texans that are experiencing drought right now. And that 47% of the population of this state is dealing with waterlessness. In fact, 16% of the U.S. and almost 54 million people are being affected by drought right now. So it's 2019. We've put men on the moon. We've made cell phone coverage and internet and electricity a given basically everywhere. But we have yet to figure out water. Wendell Berry wrote a poem about this, about the the visceral human connection with water. I'm going to give you an abbreviated version here. He said, I was born in a drought year, and all my life I've dreaded the return of that year. Sure that it is still somewhere, like a dead enemy's soul. Fear of dust in my mouth is always with me. I love the water of wells and springs. I'm a dry man, and my sweetness is to wake in the night hearing the rain. That sounds a little bit Davidic to me, and it's sort of a secular parallel for what we have here in Psalm 63, which touches on literal drought, but is much more concerned with a sort of soul drought. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then you know that soul drought is a very real thing. It looks like our relationship with God drying up and turning stale and sort of withering away. 
so that we may even think spiritually, we still haven't figured out water for our souls. But if you know what that feels like, if you're even experiencing that right now, then you're in good company. Because in Psalm 63, the man after God's own heart feels the same thing. And God met him. And we can take that as a promise that he will meet us too. You know, we talk a lot about categories of psalms. I know that you as a church went through some psalms recently, so you may have. This one's a little bit of a tweener. There's some lament in here. There's some thanksgiving. There's some praise. For my money, it is a psalm of the soul. You might argue that all of them are psalms of the soul, but there's something more here. It's why John Donne called Psalm 63 an imperial psalm. And he said it commands over all affections and spreads itself over all occasions. But the occasion for David is particular here. He is probably fleeing from Absalom. It's only by God's mercy that he has not yet become the victim of patricide. And as if a coup on your throne is not stressful enough, what is it like for your own son to want you dead? And what is it like to have your own sin to blame and hear the voice of the prophet in your head saying, the sword will never depart from your house? What does that do to your soul? When well, Psalm 63, it makes David thirsty. It makes him thirsty. Verse 1, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And this is the thirsty soul. This is the first part of three that we will look at. The thirsty soul, verses 1 through 4. You know, I haven't been thirsty, like really thirsty in a long time. And you probably haven't either, I'm imagining. But I remember as a kid, I grew up kind of way out in the country, a little town called Walter Hill. It really wasn't even a town. It's unincorporated. Walter Hill, Tennessee. And behind our house and sort of off through the woods, there was a creek. And I really, growing up, I lived for that creek. It didn't have a a physical hold on me. I didn't really need the water, right? But it had a psychological grip on me. And so I lived for that moment when I would come through the trees and I would hear the sound of the water. And there were crawfish and there were minnows. There was maybe even a deer drinking there. These things are like miracles when you're a little boy, right? And so you can understand how it captivated, how it haunted my little mind, this creek. God has that kind of psychological hold on David. He lives for him. He longs for him. One commentator points out what he calls the simplicity and the boldness of the confession. You are my God. And so David wants to hear the sound of him. He wants to drink God in deep. And he is captivated. He's haunted by the memory of worship. Back in Zion, where he could drink his fill. Verse 2, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. In other words, in their most intimate moments of worship, when God uh, had shown David that his steadfast love, his, his covenant loving kindness goes beyond death, 
And so it was better than physical life. And that drove David to praise. It drove him to lift his hands even in praise. You know, it's interesting to me, this phrase in verse 2. This is the only sermon where me drinking a little bit of water is more like an illustration than it is. Perfect. Uh, This phrase in verse 2, beholding your power and glory. We probably think of the Lord's Prayer when we hear the the phrase power and glory. But sort of secondarily, I think of the novel from from Graham Greene, the great Catholic novelist. If you've never read it, it's a really compelling picture of ministry in a very desolate place. It's about this self-described whiskey priest. And he's on the run from a totalitarian regime in Mexico. And he's really the only one left to minister. And he's confronted at every turn, not just by physical danger, but also spiritual and emotional danger. And by his own failings, because he's an alcoholic and in fact has uh, a child out of wedlock. But he continues to minister in this crisis situation, stubbornly, tenaciously, doggedly. And so here's what Graham Greene says at one point. He was a man who was supposed to save souls. It had seemed quite simple once, preaching at benediction, organizing the guilds, having coffee with elderly ladies behind barred windows, blessing new houses with a little incense, wearing black gloves. It was as easy as saving money. Now it was a mystery. He was aware of his own desperate inadequacy. That's what suffering does, right? It brings out uh, the mystery around us and the inadequacy in us. So Graham Greene might have been writing that about me. He might have been writing that about you because the Christian life is fraught, right? It's dangerous. It's mysterious. You can say that about sort of our own private, individual, spiritual life. You can say that also about the life of a church. Being a church is fraught. It's dangerous. It's mysterious. It's a mystery, for instance, why people that you invite over and over and over again never come to Fort Worth Prez. It's a mystery why families that you love have had to move, or why others have left for no good reason or just kind of faded out of church life. It's a mystery why God moves in his way, his wonders to perform, and not in the way that we want him to or in the way that we expect him to. You know, when my son was three, he's five now, uh, one day I happened to be watching him out the window and he was running around the backyard. He had his uh, bicycle helmet on backwards. I'm not sure why, no apparent reason. So he couldn't see. And he was, he was kind of tripping over some of his toys outside. And he was swinging this broken Paw Patrol uh, fishing pole like a sword. And I looked at him and I thought, you know, that's probably what I look like to God. Like when I'm just trying to live life, this is what it looks like. But, you know, really, in, in that moment, all I felt was pride. And I loved him. And I thought, man, he's given it to those bad guys. Like, he is the best. And I think that's, that's often how God feels about us in our sort of bumbling attempts at being a Christian and our bumbling attempts collectively at being a church. And so what do we do in the light of this mysterious God and this mysterious Christian life that often feels like such a dry and weary land? 
I think we confess very simply and very powerfully, oh God, you are my God. And we seek him earnestly. There's connotations here of early. The first thing is to seek God. And then I think we behold him in his power and in his glory. And that is to admit what Graham Greene called our desperate inadequacy. And that is to bring your soul in for a checkup. One commentator says that only in confessing, in thirsting, in seeking, in beholding, in praising are we satisfied. And that's our our second part here, a satisfied soul, verses 5 through 8. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. I really wrestled with this idea of soul thirst. I couldn't really figure out whether it was good or bad. And maybe that's because it's both. It's a little bit complicated. We want to want God so that in the end, thirsting after God doesn't really feel good, but it is good. It's good for us. I mean, after all, you can't really drink if you're not thirsty. And you can't feast if you're not hungry. And that's the next metaphor here. David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. His flesh was fainting in verse 1. You'll remember. And then he called to mind his God and the right worship of him. And suddenly his soul was feasting. So it's multifaceted praise. Look here. His eye looks in verse 2. His lips speak in verse 3. His hands raise in verse 4. His mouth shouts in verse 5. And his mind meditates in verse 6. In other words, God calls our whole selves to worship him, body and soul. You know, our, our youngest, Wilkes, is only four months old, but uh, I look forward to that time, maybe in another year or so. Some of you have experienced this as parents where you start to teach them eyes, right? And you, you touch their, their eyes or you touch your eyes and then they learn ears, nose, mouth. You know, sometimes we forget our bodies, right? We, we misuse them. We devalue them. I like to treat mine like sort of a coffee tank for the engine of life. And I just, the more coffee goes in, the more I can, I can do. That's why I go to all those coffee shops with students. Uh, but God does not forget our bodies. And so there's a reminder here, like God's saying to us as if we were little children, eyes, your eyes are mine. Ears, your ears are mine. Mouth, your mouth is mine. You know, we don't want to give those things up to him. We don't want to listen to those that we don't respect. We don't want to speak the way he wants us to speak. And we're too tired or too busy. or We already know too much about God to meditate on him. But God says, give me all of the parts of you and I will satisfy you. From the outside to the inside, body to soul and back again, even in the desert, even in the watches of the night. Verse 6. I don't know about you, but the watches of the night can be terrifying. That's when the world and the flesh and the devil are prowling. And God says, with me, you are safe even then. 
even in the dark. There's one commentator, Alec Montier, puts it. He says, try being a day-old chick and run to the shadow of his wings. Verse 7, for you have been my help. and In the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I mentioned John Dunn earlier. He actually preached a whole sermon on just this verse. He said that the spirit and soul of the Psalms was contracted into Psalm 63 and that the spirit and soul of Psalm 63 is contracted into this verse. And he talks about this image, this image uh, of hiding in the shadow of God's wings. He talks about it this way. Though I be not instantly delivered, nor my enemies absolutely destroyed, I find a refreshing, a respiration, a conservation, a consolation in all affections. And he knows too that if we hide in the shadow of God's wings, that we have not just uh, the shadow, but the power of them. So that we can say, my God is able to deliver me. But you know, all of this, the satisfaction of your soul is all contingent on this posture of verse 8. My soul clings to you. My soul clings to you. We could use the old word, cleave. Or perhaps the old translation, my soul followeth hard after thee. That's what David is doing in verse 1. Earnestly, early, I seek you. There's connotations here of repentance of recognizing your sin, of turning away from it for the first time or the thousandth time in turning toward God. You know, in that, the image that kept coming to my mind, the illustration is of a mouse. I hate mice. I've had them in my house before. Uh, Back in Arkansas, I had one that was living under my deck for a long time, which is better than being in the house, but still not ideal. And so I wish I could think of a better illustration. I wish I could think of a more noble animal, but I really can't. Because if we went after God the way a mouse goes after food and water and life, meaning survival, then we would all be better off. I mean, if you think about it, uh, no matter what, a mouse will find a way, right? You hear that that scratching late at night or early in the morning. You see something that he's, he's gnawed through to get at some food. You thought that that vent in your house was closed too tight for anything to get through. And yet he sort of wiggled his way through. He found a way. Mice always find a way. And David is like a mouse in this psalm. He is scratching and working and clawing at all Hours and from every angle, he's using every body part that he has, uh, every space that he can squeeze through to get to God, to survive. And that's why finally in verses 9 through 11, we talked about the thirsty soul, the satisfied soul. And this finally is the, the vindicated soul, the vindicated soul. I have a little proverb that I tell my students when things get hectic. Some of them are here this morning. They've probably already heard me say this five or so times. I like to remind them that spiritual things are rarely urgent, but they are always important. They're rarely urgent, but they're always important. And so David knew that. And that's why uh, he addressed the important things first. 
in this psalm. And now, actually, we get to the urgent things, some very urgent things. He says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down in the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. And so we're removed from uh, the beauty of worship, from feasting and resting. And that's what filled his mind for a little while. And we are deposited back into real life, onto uh, the killing fields and bodies strewn everywhere. Because David is a warrior and he wants justice done and he wants it done right now. And so you see sort of the natural course of the psalm, which I think applies to us. We begin in thirst and then God meets us as we seek him and he satisfies our soul. And then he gives us energy and strength, a sort of life force to go and do our duty to see justice done, to see evil combated, to see God glorified as we rejoice and exult in him. Verse 11. So the thirsty soul, the satisfied soul, the vindicated soul. Some commentators take this as past, present, and future. uh, And that may be true. But to take a different angle, thirsty, satisfied vindicated, you are probably somewhere on that continuum this morning. And praise God if he has brought you to a place of satisfaction and vindication. And praise God if you're on those those mountaintops. And what a great feeling. Or for that matter, praise God that he's brought us here today to the sanctuary to look on him, right? David uh, would have done anything when he penned this psalm to just be here with us today, to be sitting in a pew today, worshiping in peace and freedom. But a lot of us are down in the valley and we are thirsty or we will be at least when this hectic time of year slows down. And so maybe uh, what's drying your soul out this morning is financial stress. Or maybe it's a, a family issue or chronic pain or some sort of betrayal. Maybe it's just your own sin that's following you, haunting you. Something you feel too shameful to even repent of. Or maybe you're here today suffering the ultimate thirst of not knowing Jesus Christ and not being connected to him by faith being lost still in your sins. But either way, the water is in the same place. It's in the same place. If you march through Scripture, then you begin to hear it from Old Testament to New Testament, getting closer to Jesus. It's like a a faraway creek in a little boy's mind. begins to hear it. Whispers in Scripture of the Redeemer to come, growing louder and louder and louder until finally in John 7, it says on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. See, it's the counterpoint to everything that David is saying and thirsting for in the psalm. Because Jesus was in the ultimate dry and weary land when he stepped down out of heaven. And he came down here among us to be born of a woman and born under the law. In other words, to become thirsty in our place, in the wilderness, amongst broken people like us. And then ultimately on the cross so that Jesus knows what it's like. To be thirsty 
in a broken world. He knows. You know, for a couple of years, um, in college and after college, I spent my summers at a, um, I was a backpacking guide in Southwest Colorado at a Young Life camp. That's where I met my, uh, my wife, Christina. And uh, my first summer there, I went on a trip with a sort of salty old guide named uh, Pete Shooty. It's a great name, just the music of it, Pete Shooty. Uh, there were a lot of rumors about Pete, uh, that he, he slept on like a bare wood floor, uh, that he got up at like four each day and read the whole New Testament before the sun came up, which I don't, I don't even know if that's possible. I think these may have been embellished a little bit. Um, rumors that he was really, really intense. And uh, when he got there, I was very intimidated. And he did end up being mostly very, very intense. But Pete Schutte also had a very particular set of skills as a backpacking guide. And so uh, one day we were going up over a big ridge. We were far above tree line and we had to camp pretty high, uh, higher than we could find water, which really kind of put us in a bind because we had to have water for 15 or so people. And so Pete kind of motioned me to come with him and he said, we're going to go get some water, which is a weird thing to say when there is no water anywhere. And he grabbed what we called the, um, the, the Biff shovel, it's, it's kind of like a little mini sort of pack shovel. And uh, we walked a ways away from camp and then Pete just started digging just in the middle of nothing. He just started digging and he dug and he dug and I did not know what he was doing. But when he got deep enough, uh, you started to hear kind of the suction of mud and you could see the bottom of the hole eventually covered in this, this ugly, muddy, sort of grimy water and he said, well, let's go back and eat dinner and then we'll come back in, in a little while. And when we did, a couple hours later, the sediment had, had settled. And in the bottom of it, in this sort of just well in the dirt that he had built, this muddy hole, there was crystal clear water, which we drank, actually. Because Pete Schutte knew where the water ran. And by God's grace, we know where the water runs that it runs in and through and out of Jesus Christ, that he himself is living water and that being connected to him by repentance and faith and being justified, being sanctified and being destined for eternal life with him. That means that in our driest moments, we actually have rivers of living water in us by his spirit. But this Psalm shows us that sometimes we have to dig You have to dig for it. In digging, if we take this psalm, looks like recognizing our desperate inadequacy. It looks like beholding God's power and glory in worship together with the saints. And it looks like responding in praise to the satisfaction of our souls. And by cleaving to him in the knowledge that he will hide us away, he will uphold us. He'll satisfy us, and eventually he will vindicate our souls. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again that through Jesus, you have provided rivers of living water for us. And we pray that uh, by our connection through faith and repentance and by your grace working in us, um, that 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 would change us, that that would 
uh, reach us and satisfy us. And we pray that that would be so this morning for those of us who are thirsty and those of us who will be thirsty in the future. We pray that uh, you would be with us in a special way uh, through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.